Father, we just come to you today. Just uh, thank you for the blessings that you've given us. Thank you for this beautiful weather uh, that we've been able to enjoy. God, we, we celebrate you as we see the seasons and, and how they change and, and your design in that. God, I want to lift up uh, Pastor Rick Prettyman at Christ Community Church. Uh, Father, uh, they have uh, put, been put on their heart this uh, desire to serve the Spanish-speaking community. And God, I just pray that you would give them a vision of how to best reach uh, Spanish-speaking people here in this area. God, I pray that you would make them effective in reaching them. God, I thank you for uh, their witness in this community, and I pray that you would be with uh, Rick as he's uh, preparing to, to preach and deliver your word today. God, I pray that he would be fueled by worship. God, I pray that you would be with the Uyghur people uh, in China. Father, these people are, are primarily Muslim. I pray that you would... Uh, take this small group of Christian people and uh, make, their, make their witness effective. God, uh, pray that you would be with those who are suffering there. Pray that you would um, make the Christians uh, who are, are in that area, who have the ability to share your truth, I pray that, that witness would be effective and that the people would be reached uh, because of the suffering that they have and because of the hope by which Christians have in you. And I pray that you would just be lifted high among that people group. God, I pray for our body. I pray that you would continue to do your work of drawing your people to yourself. Uh, Father, I pray that you would find us following the example that Christ put on display in love and humility and in service. Father, I pray that your people who are hurting can find healing. They can find help and strength and encouragement and comfort in you and in this gathering of the body of Christ. Father, I pray that you would guide the pastor search team as we are looking for the one that you have uh, called to serve here. Father, I pray for the one who will come and fill that role. Pray for his family. Pray for his worship. Pray for his faithfulness. Father, I pray that uh, your name would be glorified in the reading and the preaching of your word. Father, I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. Father, that you would transform us with your word. That's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we have been, for the past weeks, in Philippians. So we're going to continue on in Philippians, chapter 2. And our passage this week is verses 12 through 18. So I would ask that you would join me in standing and honoring God's word as we read. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18 says, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You may be seated. So to give you a bit of an outline of, of where we're going today, uh, we're going to start out with uh, the very first word of this passage that says, therefore. 
Anytime we see therefore, we have to go back to the previous verses to understand the context of what's being said. So we'll start with that. Um, We're also going to figure out what it means to work out our own salvation. But to do that, I want to spend some time just going through and defining what salvation is and what that looks like. Um, And what it will look like to work out our what are working out our own salvation, what that means. Uh, we'll be looking at how our faith or our belief is inextricably connected to our works. And we'll also look at how our works reveal our belief or our unbelief. So, therefore, in order to be able to understand that, it points back to the previous verses. And what's interesting is those previous verses also contain a therefore. So basically, what this chapter says is, Because of A, then B. And because of B, then C. So with that understanding, let's read Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So because Christ was obedient in all things, Paul sets him up as a model of obedience here. And we're going to read verses 9 through 11. It says, Therefore... God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul uses this therefore, and the way he used that says it would be, you know, it would be tempting in his use of therefore to look back and think that. We obey because Jesus is exalted and high and lifted up, and because Jesus is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And while this is entirely true, this is not the argument that Paul uses for our obedience. We should see Jesus being exalted by the Father as being the result of and the reward for his obedience. So what Paul was saying, the argument that he's making here is that because Jesus was obedient, and the Father lifted him up and rewarded him, in the same way, when we're obedient, the Father will lift us up with Jesus to be with him, and we will be rewarded. This leads us to Paul's charge to us to work out our own salvation. In hearing this charge, we must consider how we define salvation. And so what that means and what it entails... If this verse is to be taken alone, one could wrongly construe that it says that our salvation or our being saved is based on our works. This is the farthest thing from the truth. So let's look at a few verses that help to clarify how we're saved. We're going to go through a lot of scripture. You don't have to turn to every single one of those. If you want to jot down some notes and go back and look at those in more detail later, feel free. There are a couple more passages that I'll I'll have you to, to look at with me. But first, Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23 tell us that all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Each of us 
must be saved if we're to be spared the eternal punishment of hell and of being separated from God. Romans 10, 9 and 10 states, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that one believes and is justified. And with your mouth one confesses and is saved. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Even in our coming to faith in Jesus, even that is a work that the Lord is doing in us. We'll look at Romans 8, 29 and 30. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now let's look at some verses that support this idea of his calling, his justifying, and his glorifying his people. And how he is the the one that's working in that. Ephesians 1 Verses 17 and 18 states that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. I want you to pay attention to who's responsible for these things. That which was previously darkened, the Father gave light to He reveals himself. He enlightens the eyes of your heart. And he is the one that called you. God does the calling. And you can't work that out. Another term used in Romans 8 is justified. Justification is being declared righteous or made righteous in the eyes of God. Justification is a one-time event that happens when we believe in Jesus Trusting in him as our only hope of salvation. Romans 3, 23-25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So when Jesus died on the cross... Jesus took on the fullness of our sin. He paid the debt that was due, and our punishment is removed from us. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, so those who trust in him would not have to bear it. And at the same time, he took on the fullness of our sin. We were granted the fullness of his righteousness as a gift. Through Jesus' death on the cross, and by your faith, you're washed clean. This exchange of our sin for his righteousness allows us to be restored to a right relationship with the Father. God does the justifying, and you can't work that out. Let's consider this term glorified. What does it mean to be glorified? Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14 says, In him you also 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For those of, who, for those of you who believe, your hearing and your believing and your sealing are all past tense. And you're given a promise and you're given a guarantee of things that are to come in the future. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verses 50 through 57. It says, I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We, are not, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable. And the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall, uh, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God's people will be glorified. God's people will be raised on the last day. And this victory is not found in our works, but in the victory of Jesus. God will do the glorifying. You can't work that out. But what about the interim? From that time where he calls us and we come to faith, and we believe, and he justifies us to that point where we're glorified and we're with him in eternity in his presence. What are we to be doing in the interim? What are we to be about? Are we to continue on our own as if this justification has no impact on the rest of our lives here on earth? The answer is no. There's another aspect of our salvation, and it's called sanctification. And there are really two aspects of sanctification, one in which he sets us apart, uh, we're set apart by God as holy for his purposes, as vessels to be used to do his work. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 and 14 says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. God does the sanctifying, setting us apart as holy to do his work. And you can't work that out. So we look at working out our own salvation. There is an already and a not yet aspect of our sanctification. God allows us to participate in this not yet aspect of our sanctification. 
This aspect of our sanctification is not fully complete. We're a work in progress. Um, This not yet aspect of our sanctification is on display in our working out our own salvation. It's in obedience, and it's in response to what God has done in calling you, in justifying you, sanctifying and glorifying you. This obedience of working out your salvation is a walking out of your faith in becoming conformed to the image of Jesus. This progressive sanctification or growing in maturity is described in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And it says, And he gave apostles, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint in which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When we come to faith in Jesus, we're not suddenly perfect. We still have rough edges that need to be knocked off. We're spiritual babies. We need nurturing. We need discipling. And we need to be growing into who it is that he's called us to be. So we look back to where we started this morning. Paul is saying that because Jesus was obedient, the Father lifted him up and rewarded him. And in the same way, when we're obedient, the Father will lift us up to be with him and we will be glorified. The Bible is packed with verses connecting our salvation by grace through faith to our response in obedience and how we walk that out. One of the first ones that comes to mind is from a passage that we were in just a few months ago in James. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith and does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be, fit, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If you recall how we described it, our works are the evidence of our faith. So I want you to turn with me now as we read 1 John chapter 3. Verses 4 through 10. Give you a second to find that. First John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. 
No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he was born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So we see that it's not a condition of our salvation, but it's an evidence of our salvation that we walk in righteousness and we make it a practice not to sin. Now, this pattern in Philippians 2 uh, that we see of Jesus being lifted up and then walking in obedience, that very same pattern is on display uh, in another passage we're going to look at in uh, Colossians chapter 1. So if you'll turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 23. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And by the way, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, so I was happy to be able to plug this one in. It's such a good picture. It says, He is the image, we're talking about Jesus here, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent." For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We're going to stop down right there. Just like we saw in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus is exalted. Jesus is high and lifted up. And he's presented in such a way that just like in Philippians chapter 2, Paul's going to follow here with uh, what our response should be in light of this Jesus. In verse 21, it says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So this following, this continuing, this holding fast that we see is such a pattern. Paul is so sure that our faith will be connected to our obedience and our being holy and are being blameless, and are holding fast to the hope of the gospel. So we have to ask, what did Jesus say about the matter? John chapter 3, verse 36, in that passage, Jesus says, 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Faith is made complete in our obedience, and Jesus sees our belief and our obedience as being inseparable. In Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus says that all the prophets, all the law and the prophets depends on these two commandments, that we love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. This sounds just like Paul's instruction previously. We studied just last week in Philippians chapter 2, in which uh, we're called to do nothing out of rivalry or out of conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than ourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, just like Jesus, the obedient and humble servant. And then we look at Jesus' last words to his disciples before ascending into heaven. And that's found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. The ESV puts it this way. The English Standard Version puts it this way. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, if you look at the, the, the NAS, the New American Standard Version, it says teaching them to follow all I have commanded you. And the NIV says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. It's all the same. If you think that Jesus had one last word of instruction, some last parting words of encouragement, um, what he would say would probably be pretty important, right? So in that, he made it clear that we're to make disciples. Notice he didn't say, get people to say a prayer, get people to confess their sin. He said, make disciples. He said, to baptize, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But he didn't stop there. He said, teach them to obey. Jesus' last instruction emphasized the necessity of obedience. Simply put, we're to love God and we're to love our brother. So I want to consider a metaphor here of marriage for just a bit uh, because it's clear that we're the body of the, the, the bride of Christ, right? So this idea of our justification and our glorification and sanctification, how does that play out if we are the bride of Christ? We've considered in the past that our baptism compares to a wedding day. There's a covenant uh, in which we are his and he is ours. There's a public declaration. There's union with him and there is joy and celebration. We don't view the purpose of our wedding day as being solely for a future benefit. And we don't walk in our marriage that way. Think about it. Would we marry and then walk away from each other for a long time and then long for some future day where we're going to come back together and live in a really big house and enjoy spending all of our time together? The answer is no. Uh, we don't have a marriage, we don't have a view of marriage that way. Uh, and we shouldn't see our relationship with the Father that way. We should have a view of walking out our salvation uh, as following Him daily where He leads and becoming more like Him as He has shown us how to live right now. 
We don't look at marriage as critically hanging on strictly following a list of requirements uh, to keep that whole thing from just falling apart, right? And we shouldn't see our salvation the same way either. But if we have a relational view of our God and a relational view of working out our salvation, we'll have a right perspective of obeying his commandments and walking alongside him, like him, in obedience. Now, I want to make sure we have a a right view of this phrase, with fear and trembling. This is not as one who is afraid, afraid that God's going to strike him down. We're not talking about a fear of punishment. Rather, this is a holy fear. This is a reverent awe of the Lord. And we see this same type of holy fear in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. I just want to touch down there and see that. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken, from, taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who shall go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. We see this. Our working out of our salvation with fear and trembling is similar to what we see with Isaiah, who saw the glory of the Lord and was in awe. And when his sin was taken away, he responded with, Here am I. Send me. Just like, just like Isaiah, we should have a willingness and obedience and a submission born out of awe and born out of forgiveness. And Isaiah was forgiven, and he immediately took up the will of the Lord. And he took up the Lord's work for his good pleasure. Look in Philippians 2, verse 13, it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice it says, God who works in you. We can rest in a God who is sovereign. Sure, we're to be about a work, but we can trust him for the results and knowing that it doesn't ultimately depend on you. So continuing in that, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, it says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. And may fulfill every resolve for good work, for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God will make you worthy. Your works do not make you worthy. He fulfills every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, not yours. And we're given a good assurance in Philippians 1, verse, 16, uh, verse 6, uh, we saw just a few weeks ago. 
which says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. He is changing us. He is transforming us. He is equipping us. And he is strengthening us. Here we can see that even in our working, he is completing our sanctification. Verse 13 also says, God works in you to will. He brings your will in line with his. He changes your desires to his desires. And his desire, he changes your desires, I'm sorry, let me go back. He changes your desires, and his desire becomes your desire. Your agenda becomes conformed to his. Now, Paul follows out his instruction of work out your own salvation with some practical guidance uh, of how we're to walk out our faith in obedience, following the obedient, humble example of Christ. Um, we are to work differently, uh, to walk differently, because what Jesus has done for us and in us. Philippians 2.15 says um, that the goal is that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. And there are two reasons why. One is because Christ is blameless and innocent, and we are being made like him. And two is so that the world can see that we're different, and we can point to him. Philippians 2.15 says that um, they were in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation. seems clear to me that this description isn't just talking about first century Greece. Um, has anybody seen strife lately? What about bitterness? What about corruption? Anger? Selfishness? The world's full of it. And we're called to move differently. And when the Spirit of God in us moves us to love and to, and to humility and to be poured out for others in service, it's a sweet aroma. And we're salty and as Philippians 2.15 says, we shine as bright lights in a dark world. And the world wonders why. And this gives us an opportunity to point to Jesus as our reason why. Another instruction Paul gives us in Philippians 2.14, it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Another, another translation says questioning. This grumbling is specifically against God and questioning God and his motives. When I hear the word grumbling, my thoughts immediately go to Israel in the wilderness between Egypt and the Promised Land. Um, they were hungry, they were thirsty, they were dissatisfied with where they were and with what they had and the direction they were going, and they were dissatisfied with their leadership. Numbers 14, 1-4 explains, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Their grumbling and their questioning revealed an underlying lack of faith or unbelief that the one who started to work in them, saving them from the bondage of slavery, could bring about that which was promised. And we see this internal grumbling and this questioning of God was revealed externally in the way they moved toward others. But we see this connection to, to Israel 
in the Exodus. Once again, in Paul's instruction in Philippians 2.16, it says that we're to hold fast to the word of life. Hebrews chapter 3 explains. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him and who, who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is being built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold fast to our original confidence, firm to the end. And it is said today that if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For those, uh, I'm sorry, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. First two verses of Hebrews chapter 4 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Hebrews 4.1 kind of rounds out this understanding of the fear that should be, we, should be, we should have in working out our salvation. Should one walk away, should one not continue in the faith, and should one not be united by faith with those who listen, that person too can fail to enter his rest. This happens not because he believed and lost his salvation, but because his belief was in vain, hollow, and lacking fruit. So there's some application points I want to go through. Uh, the first one is walk in humility toward others. Love others. Consider others. Serve others, just as Jesus did. I see examples of this in this body. I see examples of this in fish, where love is shared to those who are in need. I see examples of this at the Rafa Clinic, where those who are desperate are loved, they're given hope, and they're supported in some of their most difficult circumstances. I see it in For the City. Uh, 
I see it when those who struggle through what they've gone, struggle with what they've gone through are given support. I see it when people in the body grieve, and those uh, they grieve with those uh, who are grieving. I see it in fostering and adopting and walking with the fatherless. I see it in those who serve so faithfully to teach and to mentor and disciple those disciple their brothers and sisters. And these are just a few examples. So I want to commend you in that. Second thing is, don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but hold fast to Jesus and his gospel. Third is, I want to consider the first half half of Philippians chapter 1, verse 22, that was covered uh, by Morris um, just prior to this. I was listening to this verse, and and I had a thought. And so I I want you to hear this verse and consider this with me. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. That's Philippians 1.22. If I'm created to glorify him, and if I am perpetually unfaithful in my labor, why should I expect God to continue to let me live in the flesh? These are my thoughts. And similarly, if I'm perpetually unfruitful in my labor on this earth, why should I expect God to let me live in eternity. It was Paul's expectation that if we're to be alive, we are to be obedient and fruitful in our labor. And that seems to be God's expectation too. Personally, I thank God for his forgiveness and for his patience and his rich grace and mercy that he's extended to me because I know myself. I know how sometimes fruitfulness can come in fits and spurts. But I pray that God will continue to grow in us the fruitfulness of obedience. But in case one feels that I put too much emphasis on works, I give you this last one point. If our eyes are fixed on doing good things, we just might miss Jesus. But if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, the world can't help but see our works. So keep your eyes fixed on Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Remember that your salvation does not depend on you. Consider that the origin of our faith is found in the author, and he deserves the credit for it. Have you considered that he has already finished writing your story? He will perfect the faith of those that he has called, and he will bring it to completion. He is trustworthy. He's powerful, and he's faithful to do it. So rest in him as you're about the obedience of working out your salvation. Pray with me. Father, I just thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for Jesus, our Redeemer, and the means by which we're saved. I thank you for your love and considering us and restoring us. Thank you for your patience. Father, thank you for Jesus as the model of walking out obedience. I pray that you would help us to walk in that. But Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and on your word. I pray that you would help us to love others. I pray that you would help us to consider others. I pray that you would help us to serve others and walk in humility just as Christ did, the obedient humble servant. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this word. I pray that you would 
Allow it to continue to do a work in us this week as we walk in it. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.